Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds, and welcome to another amazing episode of the Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology Series. This is Dan Amador here. So today, we are going to dive into the intriguing world of cardiac masses, an uncommon yet significant aspect within the realm of cardio-oncology. We are honored to be joined by a stellar team, and let me introduce them. So first, Dr. Theodora Donison, who is a cardiology fellow at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Teo has actually worked closely in person, both with our fit lead for this episode, as well as our expert faculty speaker, who you will hear about in a second. So I will let her tell you more about that. Hi, Dan, and hi, everybody. I'm very excited about today's episode, and one of the main reasons is that I get the chance to work more with Dr. Sukriti Bantia, who is an internal medicine resident at Ascension Providence Hospital in Michigan. I worked with Sukriti as part of the Cardio Nerds Academy, where she was a fellow in House Thomas. She's one of the kindest and most talented people I know, and I'm thrilled that she gave in to her nerdy side and is currently applying for cardiology fellowship. Thank you so much for the kind words, Dio. The feelings are very mutual. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Juan Lopez Mate, who is a nationally recognized expert in the field of cardio-oncology, cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging, echocardiography, and cardiovascular computer tomography. Dr. Lopez has over a hundred peer-reviewed publications and has held numerous leadership positions within cardiovascular societies, such as the American College of Cardiology, Society of Cardiovascular Magnetic Resonance, and American Society of Echocardiography. He is currently the Medical Director of Cardiac Imaging at the Lee Health System. He is also one of the most influential physicians on social media where he has over 11,000 followers on Twitter, also known as X. I mentioned this in previous episodes, but my love for cardio-oncology stems from my time as a research fellow at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. I had the privilege to work with Dr. Lopez there and to witness him masterfully find imaging clues that others missed. I want to bring up a couple of fun facts about Dr. Lopez, which he was proudly showing off in his office. He has competed in multiple Ironman triathlons, and he is ordained as a Jedi Master. Dr. Lopez, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Thank you. It's an honor to participate in this discussion. The triathlon days are gone, but you know, I'm still a Jedi <laughs> Master. It's a part of a church online that you can order some diplomas, and because I love Star Wars, I joined that particular church and became a minister of the church of star wars so you know that that was the the whole history behind it i know that theo always was amazed by that i was like where did that came from <laughs> yeah i'm just so impressed that we we're able to find like-minded nerds everywhere <laughs> yeah that's right that's right i mean i it's really a, ple a pleasure joining you guys i'm a fan i've been following what you have done and how big you have become. And I'm really proud of you, Theo and Dino. You guys are doing great and keep following your successes. I love this discussion so far, but let's get right into it. Dr. Lopez, you joined us just in time to staff some patients from the Cardio Nerds Medical Center. Let's meet our first patient, a 34-year-old man 
with a history of malignant testicular tumor, currently believed to be in remission after archaeectomy, presented with syncope. TTE revealed a mobile mass in the left ventricle, appearing to be connected to one of the papillary muscles. A TEE was done for better visualization and revealed two intracardiac masses, a larger one originating from the chordate tendine of the anterolateral papillary muscle and a smaller mass attached to the interatrial septum. Dr. Lopez, what is your general approach to the diagnosis of intracardiac masses? Well, thank you for inviting me into this interesting discussion. So I try to keep it simple in regards to the approach to when you find an intracardiac mass, which is often an incidental finding, sometimes it's not, but most of the times it's something that you are not expecting. And sometimes the patient can have a clinical symptom like a stroke or something that will trigger an echo. But in a case like this, I think that my approach not necessarily will be going directly to a transesophageal echo. So uh, in general terms, you know, we start from transthoracic echocardiogram and then depending on the findings, if it's highly mobile attached to the valves, you know, it, it might be better to do a transesophageal echo. But if it's a mass that is clearly mobile in the LV, there are techniques like cardiac MR, which is a very robust and can help you differentiate easily tumor versus thrombus which will be in the differential. Other type of masses which are more common than primary cardiac tumor are metastatic disease. So if the patient has a undergoing malignancy, you can be suspicious that it could be metastatic spread, but it also has to make sense. The other thing is that if the mass is felt like if the patient has a apical aneurysm or segmental well motion abnormality, and you know it looks like a thrombus, more like less heterogeneous, more homogeneous, and associated to left ventricular dysfunction or a akinetic wall or hypokinetic wall, then that patient with that transthoracic is enough and then you can anticoagulate and follow up. But, you know, if there's a question that it could be a tumor, then the next step, in my opinion, will be a cardiac MRI to assess better and think about if tissue biopsy will need to be performed. And if that's the case, then you have to evaluate whether this is potentially a negative margin resection or just an open biopsy to see what we're dealing with. So that's my basic approach will be starts from transthoracic echo, use MRI or TE uh, depending on the clinical context, uh, but TE will be more for valvular vegetations, even for uh, left atrial appendage thrombus that could be indicated, but, you know, not really for evident masses in the left ventricle. Thank you, Dr. Lopez, for going over what differential is already forming in your mind when you see this type of patient. Um, so there are multiple types of masses that you can think about when you have a patient with a transthoracic echo who has an incidental mass. And you mentioned it's important whether the mass is incidental or whether there were some symptoms that prompted the presentation. And you also mentioned in your mind, you're already thinking about some potential causes. Is there an infection? Is it endocarditis? Is there a thrombus? Are there any other associated findings that would 
be concerning for thrombus formations, such as wall motion abnormalities? Are there any other masses? Would you think that this would be metastatic disease? Or do you think that this is just a primary intracardiac mass? We know that cardiac masses are much more frequently metastatic than primary. So in this case, specifically the one that Sukriti brought, and in the setting of the history that Sukriti emphasized, I'm not as concerned for a primary cardiac tumor. Instead, the main concerns I would have in this case would be whether this is metastatic disease or non-neoplastic disease, such as thrombi, given the procoagulant status associated with cancer, or infection, given immunosuppression related to cancer. Dr. Lopez, are there any important history elements that you look for when evaluating patients with cardiac masses? Definitely, they are. But adding to the point that you were making about this, narrowing the differential more to the clinical context of this being metastatic disease versus thrombus, you know, I think that that's an important conversation to have with the patient and also be able to wake how the patient is doing clinically from the malignancy standpoint and what is the overall prognosis, how advanced the patient is. Because often when there's uh, when we have patients with metastatic disease, there's some difficult conversations to have, you know, and there's certainly now a lot of great therapies for cancer that have increased significantly the survival. But I think that in a patient that is stage four with limited options, I, I think that trying to take the mass out will be not the best approach. And in a metastatic disease, likely the better uh, way will be to, to treat the underlying disease in order to treat that. But sometimes the patient can have obstructive symptoms. And when their obstruction to the inflow of the tricuspid or mitral inflow or something that is really impairing significantly the patient, then a palliative surgery uh, in a patient that otherwise will live long if they don't have that mechanical obstruction is something that also have to be considered. But going towards the points that you brought up about the history elements, I think that important thing is, of course, what risk factors this patient have for cancer if there's no malignancy or if there's a no malignancy. It should make sense in regarding if it, it's this type of tumor typically spreads there, this type of malignancy and constitutional symptoms if a patient has fever, thrombotic events in a patient also that have obstructive effect, heart failure, arrhythmias pericardial effusions uh, or, or presenting with cardiac tampon and, and also embolization, like a peripheral embolization. So I think there's certain key elements that could point us towards a possible cardiac mass, but often it's more common to find as an incidental finding because, you know, when the masses start giving symptoms, if it's, especially if it's something that is malignant, is certainly the disease have spread significantly and some symptoms can be confusing. So I will say that the classical patient with cardiac myxoma that has uh, fever, embolic events, it's very different from a metastatic disease in that sense, in the cl clinical presentation. There are some key points that you have to keep in mind, which are constitutional symptoms like fever, weight loss, general malice, the direct effects or consequence of obstruction and distal embolization. Wow, that was a great breakdown, Dr. Lopez. So just to summarize for our audience, 
I think my key takeaways from Dr. Lopez's discussion was A, to put the patient's presentation into context. So always think about the risk factors for cardiac tumors. The second is to remember that cardiac tumors can present in a variety of ways. They may be diagnosed incidentally, but patients may also have symptoms that may present in three key ways. They may be constitutional symptoms such as fever, weight loss, malaise. They could also be direct effects of the tumor such as obstruction causing syncope or they may present with effects of distal embolization of the tumor. Sukriti, that is a great summary. You know, Dr. Lopez, we know that history could be extremely helpful to tease out these options, especially, you know, they may give us some clinical idea of what this kind of mass that we're dealing with is. But objective data is also so important for a host of reasons. So Dr. Lopez, what diagnostic tools are available to build the differential diagnosis of patients with cardiac tumors? Absolutely. That's a great question, Dan. So basically, you know, the important thing to consider is that we have the different modalities. We have echo, we have a CT, we have MR, we have PET. And then when you find these conundrum modalities, you start thinking, what path should I take? And I will say that for most cases, I think that the important part is to have a very strong foundation in echocardiography and understand how a thrombus looks in echo and how a tumor looks in echo, but echo has a lot of limitations. So I think that for most cases where it doesn't look like an apical thrombus in transthoracic, then cardiac MRI will be indicated. So first modality will be echo. Second modality after echo will be cardiac MR because of the tissue characterization assessment that you can have. And then the delay enhancement characteristics, all these tissue characteristics where you can differentiate tumor versus thrombus. And within tumor, you can really diagnose accurately cysts, lipomas, all these masses that are called pseudomasses or basically non-tumor or prominent structures that you can also identify in cardiac MRI that in echo might look like tumor. So I think cardiac MRI will be the second line testing. Third and fourth line testing will be a combination of CT and PET. FDG has been shown to accurately differentiate benign from malignant tumors in patients that are not candidate for cardiac MR. And this is something also to consider in some patients because not everyone can tolerate a cardiac MR. So in those, then a combination of cardiac CT plus FDG PET can help differentiate benign from malignant. And then what is the role of TE? As I said, TE will be mostly for any valvular masses that are highly mobile. Anything that is highly mobile will be better assessed with a TE. And if the size of the mass, remember the limitations of size basically in MR, Usually the spatial resolution is one millimeter or 1.5 millimeter. And then you have in CT the highest spatial resolution, which, you know, it can be from 0.6. Now with the newer generation scanner can get thin as 0.3 millimeters. So I think that all those things you have to consider, but most cases will be echo first, then cardiac MR. Thank you for going over that schematic of what types of imaging you would choose. I thought it was a very interesting point that you mentioned, you know, TT, MRI, CT, PET-CT. 
Um, and I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that TEE is especially useful in situations where you have mobile masses that would probably help decrease some of the artifact that you can sometimes encounter with CTs or MRIs. And in situations where you have smaller masses that you would need to better characterize, you were summarizing the fact that cardiac MRI would not see masses that are smaller than one, 1.5 millimeters, right? Is that, did I understand that correctly? Yes. Yeah, so the spatial resolution, we're talking about, you know, one millimeter. So if it's smaller than that, you can probably see that with a T and especially if it's highly mobile too. Part of the situation is that, like you said, the other modality that is underutilized, it tends to be PET-CT with the FDG, that it can be used in combination with cardiac CT for certain cases that the patient will not tolerate a cardiac MR. And these patients are, you know, you're going to see in a month a couple of patients that cannot, they just can't, or they require to be under general, and some of the patients might might you know, the risk might be higher to put them under general anesthesia. So, so I think that certainly there's a role for cardiac CT and the combination of FDG-PET for those type of patients that will not tolerate or there's a contraindication for cardiac MR. And just one more quick question. What is the role of TTE with intravenous image-enhancing agents? versus cardiac MRI to define suspected intracardiac thrombi. Do you think you can get away just with using image enhancers or would you suggest confirming or better defining with cardiac MRIs to exclude thrombus? To me, that's part of the echocardiographic evaluation. Meaning that when I talk about echo, certainly if there's a cardiac mass, you should use contrast and you should try to assess for perfusion of the mass. And sometimes it can get a little bit complex because what you have to do is, you know, when you inject ultrasound enhancing agents, you have to decrease the mechanical index. So the micro bubbles of ultrasound enhancing agents are not destroyed during that period. But for these cases, after you inject contract and you assess perfusion, Sometimes the mask can look like it's enhancing, but it might be just oversaturation. To disprove that oversaturation from artifact, you can increase the mechanical index. And if you see that within the mask, it turns even darker, the core. And then when you uh, decrease the mechanical index, it goes back to where it were. Then you prove that there's a true perfusion of the mask. And that will be more characteristic of a positive ultrasound enhancing agent uh, perfusion. But that's something that I usually do. And, and sometimes I do it when I'm doing transesophageal echo. I can tell you, I had a recent case, uh, very interesting. So we were doing a, a, a watchman and then the interventional cardiologist guessed vein access. I already did all the baseline measurements. And then suddenly the interventional cardiologist it tell, it tells me, hey, Juan, I cannot go up the IVC up. I don't know what's going on. Let me inject some contrast. And then there was an occlusion just before the intrahepatic IVC. And then I said, well, you know what? Let me just do a transgastric view, chase the IVC. And then suddenly I saw this huge mass inside the IVC and I was like, what the heck is going on here? 
So I, I tell the tech, uh, let's inject some ultrasound enhancing agent. And we did that. And then suddenly that mass cut up the perfusions significantly. And, and I, I was still like, well, let me increase the mechanical index, index and see if this is oversaturation or, or it might not be like real perfusion, but it was, it was real because then suddenly it, it became darker in the core. And then he went back to perfusing again. And the patient had some history of hematuria that was investigated by urology. But after I saw that mass, I said, like, this is renal cell carcinoma. I don't have any doubts after seeing that, that this is renal cell carcinoma. So basically, we did a, a CT abdomen pelvis with contrast. And indeed, one of the kidneys was like with a huge tumor and then getting into the IVC and, and higher. And that's where fortunately, or unfortunately, fortunately, because, you know, we made the diagnosis because it could have been missed for a longer time and it will be worse. But we identify a, a renal cell carcinoma during a Watchman implantation. It was kind of something that I would have never suspected that will happen. And, but then, you know, the skills of the, from the cardiac tumor became handy because we already knew what we were dealing with after we aborted the procedure. Of course, we aborted the procedure because we didn't have access to put the watchman. But I just wanted to share that case, you know, just, just because we were talking about ultrasound enhancing agents and I just wanted to share that. Crazy story. Absolutely crazy. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It was so relevant to what we're trying to emphasize here, how imaging can actually make the diagnosis before you have tissue confirmation, so to speak. So Dr. Lopez, just to be the devil's advocate, what are the situations where you think imaging will not be enough and tissue diagnosis is necessary? So I will say that often, especially in primary cardiac tumors, if you're suspecting you have a primary cardiac tumor, you need tissue. You know, there's one thing if you can prove with cardiac MRI that it's a cyst. You know, a cyst is going to be a cyst. You know, a, a lipoma is going to be a lipoma because you can prove that with MR. Now, even if you're certain that the diagnosis is myxoma, it needs to come out. So the myxoma is going to grow. It needs to be removed. So you're going to have need to have tissue anyways there. And most of the primary cardiac tumors, benign and malignant, they need to come out. You know, or you need some sort of tissue. I have experience in cardiac sarcomas, and, and I think that definitely gives me an advantage over some others. But I think that there's many times where you can be wrong. It might not be that malignancy could be that other one. So when there's cancer or suspicion of, of some sort of tumor, you need tissue diagnosis. So I don't think that there's any way unless it's a metastatic disease, you know, like a lung cancer that there's metastatic spread to the heart or breast cancer. And, you know, it's a patient that has an advanced stage. And then that's where you say, well, you have to tell the oncologist, can the cancer treatment be optimized? But in most cases that you have a primary cardiac tumor, you need tissue. For metastatics, you know, it's a different thing. In my times at MD Anderson, you could have a patient with two coexistent malignancies, but that's very rare. You know, and you will see it only in very specialized tertiary cancer centers. But, you know, I think that, you know, like we were talking about that it is important to understand that you cannot just bet, oh, this is a sarcoma and tell the oncologist, yeah, just give the patient chemo. They'll be fine. 
No, no, they, they need tissue. And the oncologist is going to ask you for tissue. Now, how are you going to get that tissue? In most places, talk to the cardiac surgeon. In some other places, the interventional cardiologist will try to get a tissue. If it's the right side, even better. If it's the left side, it's more challenging because of the risk of embolism. But I've seen some centers doing that. I've seen some centers e even doing angiovac, you know, in left-sided masses, which is pretty impressive. I think that definitely tissue, you need tissue for all these suspected primary cardiac tumors. Thanks, Dr. Lopez. I think that was a great learning point for our audience. So imaging cannot substitute a tissue diagnosis, particularly in primary cardiac tumors. Now, let's get back to our patient. As Dr. Lopez reviewed above, our patient has an unusual presentation. And given the large size of the left ventricular mass, we were worried that he was developing obstructive symptoms. So we referred him to a cardiac surgeon where the two masses were excised and sent to pathology. The results showed that our patient had atrial myxomas and a diagnosis of Garni complex associated myxomas was made. Interestingly, less than 10% of myxomas occur in familial clusters, leading to what is called the Garni complex. This represents a triad of cardiac or extracardiac myxomas, endocrine hypofunction, and skin lesions. The cardiac myxomas are usually found in the third decade of life and are typically multicentric and atypically located. Carney complex is an autosomal dominant disorder occurring in familial clusters. So our big takeaway from this case, and particularly from the discussion we just had with Dr. Lopez, common things are common, but occasionally you may have zebras Dr. Lopez mentioned that, you know, at MD Anderson, he's come across tumors of two primary origins. And in this case, we had a very atypical presentation of atrial myxoma and a diagnosis of Carney complex was made. Great case. Yeah, very, very interesting. You know, and I tell you, part of the situation is you can never assume if you're suspecting primary. And I've seen metastatic disease of testicular tumors to the heart, but that's not very common either. But I think, you know, it makes sense when you have some sort of discrepant or atypical presentation to consider negative margin resection if achievable, and then you confirm your diagnosis and then the patient definitely benefit from this diagnosis. And this is a genetic condition, which, you know, has a big impact in how you take care of this patient, how you advise the family. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Dr. Lopez and Sukriti. What an intriguing case. Atrial myxomas are one of the most common causes of primary cardiac tumors, and certainly having multiple myxomas at the same time is extremely rare. And Dr. Lopez, was there anything particularly that would have helped us think about these tumors or think about that these tumors were myxomas in the first place? Any clinical or imaging clues that we may have missed? Well, you know, the cardiac MR, uh, you know, is very helpful because there's certain characteristics, especially in the SSFP scene imaging, the myxomas can have a blackberry appearance, which is very characteristic. And then they don't tend to be very well perfused on first pass perfusion. 
and they tend to have a high signal in T2 and, and in T1, it tends to be high ISO, uh, similar intensity to the myocardium. But I think because of the clinical presentation, and again, uh, myxomas, the most common location of myxoma is left atrium attached to the interaudial septum. And that was not the case here. So I think that Especially if you have multiple, then it can be very confusing. So I think in this case, even if you do a cardiac MR, you probably will still be in doubt. And, and so I think definitely issue diagnosis was the way to go, especially because of a situation where the primary malignancy is pretty far from the organ that has in a patient that don't have a significant metastatic disease in other organs. I'll be more suspicious that this is some some type of different disease. And Dr. Lopez, now that our patient's myxomas are removed surgically, are there any particularities for subsequent treatment or follow-up? I would say that if it's a carnine complex, it requires closer follow-up because we know that this can recur. I mean, myxomas overall can recur, right? But but especially if you have carny complex, it can definitely recur. So usually, you know, annual surveillance will be more than justified. And, you know, for cardiac somas, I would really prefer doing a cardiac MR because it's less invasive and, and a really good modality for surveillance. And I think that it will be appropriate to do it between every few years. Uh, there's not an exact number of years. But I will say that an interval between three to five years will be appropriate for a cardiac myxoma that is not carnal. Amazing. Now, let's go see our next patient together. A 56-year-old woman presented to her primary care physician with fatigue and weight loss, as well as progressive dyspnea with exertion. Routine workup included a transthoracic echocardiogram, which demonstrated a left atrial mass attached to the interatrial septum. Additional workup, including infectious testing, was repeatedly negative. Surgical excision of the left atrial mass was performed with histopathological evaluation demonstrating invasive ductal carcinoma of the breast. Immunohistochemistry confirmed the diagnosis of HER2-positive breast cancer that had metastasized to the heart. Dr. Lopez, could you share with us what a multidisciplinary team approach would look like in this case, both in the acute phase and long-term? Thank you, Sukriti. This is a very interesting and unfortunate case of making a diagnosis of her positive breast cancer by a finding in the heart. Very, very, very atypical. My question to you is, whether there there was some sort of follow-up with the patient in the sense of a patient didn't feel like a breast mass or didn't have some history of previous breast cancer. That's really atypical. Dr. Lopez, the patient just presented with these new symptoms of fatigue, weight loss, and was newly diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. Very unfortunate case, but in a situation where you have certainly metastatic disease to the heart and breast cancer definitely can spread to the pericardium and to the heart, uh, 
you know, I think that in those situations, it already has a surgical excision. So definitely the patient needs to receive a cancer treatment and needs anti-HER2 agents for sure. But this patient needs treatment for breast cancer after this and close follow-up. There's no guidelines, right, for this type of atypical cases, but I think that you will have to be suspicious about what other spread, you know. Uh, so this patient uh, likely will need a full workup just, you know, for staging purposes and all this, but just in the heart, this is a pretty advanced stage breast cancer. Dr. Lopez, in your experience or from what you've seen at MD Anderson, where you have a lot of these very unfortunate rare cases, does cardiac metastatic disease respond to systemic treatment? Oh, yeah. It can respond to treatment. You just have to to try. Currently, there's so many treatment modalities and efficacious treatment. Of course, you know, the prognosis if you compare someone that don't have this type of spread, it's less, but there's still hope in treating this patient and the patient deserves to be treated. It's not atypical to have metastatic disease in the heart. If I remember correctly, I think in autopsy series, they have reported as big as 10% of patients that died from cancer had some sort of metastatic disease to the heart. So it's not very uncommon, but this clinical presentation of having obstructive symptoms, which seem to be the, the case, that have a diagnosis of breast cancer just after removing the tumor. So this is not a common presentation as well. Uh, thanks, Dr. Lopez. Now it's time for our favorite question of the podcast. What makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? Well, you know, cardio-oncology is a very comprehensive field of cardiology, where definitely you have the shared risk factors, you have the toxicities of the oncologic therapies, and also you have all these interesting clinical presentations and all that really keeps you engaged. And there's no dull moment, I think, when you're caring for these patients and the opportunities that you can offer this patient a better quality of life and, and to keep their heart, heart healthy during cancer treatment and to optimize the risk factors during cancer therapy and after cancer therapy survivorship. All this is life-changing and they're so grateful and develop a great connection. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I, I tell you, I have a patient that I met at MD Anderson when they found out that I was moving to a different place in Lee Health. She, now she goes and sees me. <laughs> she, she travels to Florida to see me and I feel honored. But, but you know, you develop uh, a close bond to these patients because you're usually the one that give the, the, the better news. You know, and they will tell you that, oh, thank you. Thank you. And the other thing is that they really trust you and they want and they care about their heart health after getting done with all the chemo. I initially, it's not really what they're thinking about because what they're thinking about is I have to survive this period of this terrible disease that I'm fighting. But then after the fact, they uh, recognize the value that you add to the care in the sense that 
you helped the systolic function to recover, you guided them and optimized their blood pressure during cancer treatment, and you identify subclinical atherosclerosis and start some statins, and they recognize those efforts. And these patients really develop a bond, a very trusting bond. And I think that the collaboration with the oncologist is great. It's a multidisciplinary field, really, where it's not only us cardiologists, but it's also oncologists. There's a lot of oncologists that are highly engaged and involved. It's the teamwork, team science, and we're all, the center of all of this is the well-being of the patient. I love your answer, Dr. Lopez, and I feel the same. I feel like it's a very challenging field, but it's also a very rewarding field from multiple perspectives, both the intellectual one, but also the emotional and interpersonal one, because it brings you close both to your patients, but also to your colleagues and to your colleagues from multiple disciplines. Definitely, definitely. I, I certainly have met great colleagues and I still keep in touch with them, whether it's social media or emails or, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's important and sometimes you know, you give them a call, sometimes they, they give you a call. And, and I think that's the strength about working together and, and working as a team more than I'm the one that called the shots. But no, we're all responsible for this patient well-being and we're better in that regard. Dr. Lopez, Sukriti, Dan, thank you so much for the wonderful collaboration on this fun and educative episode. Actually, I really wanted for us to record this episode Cardio-oncology and what it stands for is one of the main misconceptions that people frequently make. They think that it's about tumors or cancers of the heart, and I hope we've clarified with all of the episodes so far that this is not the case. However, the topic of tumors inside of the heart still is a very interesting and very important one, so I'm thrilled that we were able to address it today. Please stay tuned for more episodes in the Cardio-Oncology series and make sure to review some of the other ones that we've recorded. We have innumerable pearls for you to look over. Thank you. Honored to participate here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Diane Maskett. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and fourth year medical student at Rowan Virtua School of Osteopathic Medicine in New Jersey. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our new and exciting upcoming episodes. And now, my friends, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Thank <laughs> you.